Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Lawrence Cunningham, a professor of law at George Washington University. Professor Cunningham is considered a leading scholar on Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett, and has written multiple books on Berkshire's business model and culture, Buffett's shareholder letters, his investing approach, and much more. He's also spent considerable time on the concept of high-quality shareholders and the types of companies that attract these long-term, highly concentrated investors. This podcast is full of thoughts and insights on Buffett and well beyond. The professor also shares one of his most memorable moments with Warren and the great advice he was given years ago. As always, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Oh, one last thing. If you find this episode particularly valuable and you leave a review on Apple iTunes and take a screenshot of it and send it to us at info at we'll send you a free copy of Professor Cunningham's book, Dear Shareholder, the best executive letters from Warren Buffett, from Watsa, and other great CEOs. Thanks so much. Professor, thank you very much for jumping on with us today. Um, we very much appreciate it. Um, we're looking forward to a really good discussion with you. There's a lot of things we want to get through. So the first thing I want to ask you is about a man and a company you know a lot about, Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway. By my count, um, you've written, and correct me if I'm wrong here, five books that weave together Buffett shareholder letters, the quality of a shareholder base, Berkshire Hathaway's corporate culture, and much more. Um, I think, let me just read these off real quick. How to think like Benjamin Graham and invest like Warren Buffett. The essays of Warren Buffett, lessons for investors and managers. Dear shareholder, the best executive letters from Warren Buffett, Prem Watsa, and other great CEOs, margin of trust, the Berkshire business model, and the essays of Warren Buffett's lessons for corporate America. Am I missing anything? Uh, no, and thank you very much for running down the whole list. Sure. Okay. That's a lot of writing, a lot of books, good stuff. Um, so, the, so, you know, you're, you're really a student of Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway. And, you know, where I want to focus this first question for you is, you know, with Buffett, he's achieved success that no other investor has been able to in history. I think his returns are something like 20% annualized returns since 1965. Um, given that he's achieved something that arguably no one else has been able to do and no one else probably will be able to do in the future, you know, what are the key traits? What are the key things in your mind that has allowed him to produce those results um, and achieve something that no one else um, has done ever? It's a great question. I guess the first point I'd make is that I do think it's more skill than luck. Uh, you know, a lot of critics simply say, well, you're going to see a lucky person like that every once in a blue moon. Uh, luck has certainly uh, played a role in, in Warren's career and success, uh, but uh, skill has been obvious. And I think that uh, uh, that's an important threshold point to make. Uh, there, there's something about what he did and how he approached things that matters and that other people can learn from. And, and I think you're right to, to um, resist boiling it down. I think there are many different uh, personality traits, intellectual habits, um, economic outlooks, 
that have played a role in, in helping Warren to be very good at um, identifying excellent businesses, waiting for the prices right, holding for the long term. And so, um, but, but I do think if, if I was pressed, um, you know, for those, the rest of us to think, well, what, what can I do differently or better? Uh, I, I think the bottom line on, on him is, I, I'll call it absorption. What I mean is he, he's been a learner his whole life. He's read a lot, well known for, for that. Uh, he's paid careful attention to uh, the thoughts of others from all different points of view. He's weighed evidence, he gathered a lot of evidence, and thought about things carefully, and, and has a high absorption rate. Um, so he uh, gathers lots of information and then and, and analyzes it. So, um, and then within that framework of you know, mostly skill and heavy absorption, I'd say disciplined rationality. Again, something all of us could potentially do, do better. Um, all of us make um, um, basic psychological mis mistakes, or sometimes they're, they're sensible and practical if um, you know, you're, you're engaged in behavioral propensities um, that might lead you to a sub-rational decision. He, he's been very aware of those uh, realities of, of, of human thought and behavior and, and has done a really good job of controlling his own. So that, that kind of disciplined rationality you know, and it translates into um, being patient, uh, waiting for the right pitch, as they say in baseball, as he says, says a lot, you know, waiting till um, the, the opportunity to uh, swing and make it is so obvious uh, that it's hard to make a mistake. So it's a bundle of things, um, uh, but uh, there are a few core principles there that I think all of us can benefit from, especially that idea of absorbing lots of information and trying to be aware of our behavioral tics and, 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 to, and control them. That's great. Thanks for getting uh, some specifics on that. Um, yeah, waiting for the fat pitch, I think, is what Buffett likes to say, um, waiting for that opportune time um, to make his investment. Um, one of the other concepts I wanted to ask you about is the concept of Berkshire being able to attract high-quality shareholders. I know this is something that you spend some time on in your paper, the case for empowering quality shareholders, you, you present this two by two matrix of different types of investors. So you have your transients, which are low conviction, short-term time horizon investors, your indexers, which are essentially low conviction, but long-term time horizon investors, activists, which are high conviction and short-term, mostly time horizon type of investors. And then you have this sort of fourth quadrant, which is the quality high conviction, long-term time horizon shareholders. So I wanted just to see if you could talk about what those major attributes are of um, the high quality shareholders, sort, sort of flush that out a little bit more. And then, you know, sort of contrast that with some of those groups. I mean, I kind of did it at a high level, but if you just want to speak to that, I think that would be very um, interesting. Yeah, thanks. That, that matrix tries to capture today's general shareholder demographic. And I, I think those are the four major categories. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's important because the dominant ownership of corporate America today are those indexers that is long-term but, but not concentrated, which own about 40% of corporate America, 
and the transients, the short-termers uh, who just are in and out, momentum traders, um, ARBs, just opportunists, uh, and they own about 40%, depending on how you count. The activists are moving in and out at various places. They have higher or lower stakes at various times, but roughly they command about 5% of the public equity markets at any given time. So it's only about 15% of today's shareholder demographic that are long-term and concentrated. Uh, but they will probably be the group that is most able and willing to make the most valuable and rational uh, long-term decisions on shareholder voting, like director elections, mergers, big asset sales, and other things, uh, compared to those other groups. Uh, all the groups contribute something and contribute something valuable. Um, the transients contribute liquidity and, and deep capital markets, which is extremely valuable. The indexers contribute the possibility for millions of ordinary people to get the market return at, at basically you know, zero, zero cost, zero, zero risk. So they all play a role, but you've got to have a group uh, that is focused and long-term in order to have rational pricing and, and optimal uh, business decisions. So I think that cohort is... Um, Increasing, you know, it's getting smaller and smaller, has been getting smaller and smaller over the past 20 or 30 years, um, and is they're increasingly important. Uh, and so I've begun a research project on that, really on all shareholder groups, but, but focused on the advantages of that quality shareholder cohort and how companies might uh, try to attract them and, and even who they are and which companies have attracted them in high density. I want to ask you about the indexers quick uh, before we talk a little bit more about this, because it's something a lot of people tend to be worried about for a lot of reasons, which is this whole, this whole increase in the percentage of the market that's owned by indexers. From your perspective, you know, as that rises, it seems like we're going to have fewer and fewer high quality shareholders. Is that something you're worried about from a corporate governance standpoint? Yes, I am. That's my major worry. And, and I can, say you remember jack bogle who is credited with inventing the index fund he was certainly an intellectual pioneer he wrote his princeton dissertation about the concept in the 70s and went on to build up vanguard which specialized in the practice and, and you know he made a name for himself as uh, as the uh, uh the, the way to, that ordinary people can get a stake in the market get the market return at low cost and and, and he was very proud of that accomplishment. Jack was a friend of mine. I was I was proud of him too. Uh, he once made a joke. Uh, one of the books that you mentioned, um, Justin, the How to Think book. I, I asked Jack for a, a jacket blurb, uh, and and he called me back and said, "I'd be I'd be happy to do it because I think what you and Warren are talking about that kind of investing it's the second best kind of investing in the world." But even Jack, uh, just about six months before he died, he, he ran an article in the Wall Street Journal, did a bit of interview with them saying, yes, I, I created something wonderful. I'm proud of it. I'm, I'm sticking with that. But if it gets too big, there will be a problem. And, and, and he didn't say exactly what too big was, but he was saying it, it may be getting too big too soon. That is, if BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, these, these behemoths that own commanding shares, but even all the smaller ones and just ordinary, you know, small, small funds that just index. 
uh, they don't have the resources to study individual companies to make decisions about who should be on this board or, or whether they ought to have a staggered board or whether the CEO and chairman ought to be split, whether they ought to make this merger. They simply don't have the resources to do it. I mean, the business model is exactly the other way around. Buy small stakes in basically all the companies and then you don't have to worry about individual companies. So they simply don't have the resources. But somebody's got to make those decisions, and, and, and the rational decision will vary with different companies. For some companies, a staggered board is a bad idea, but not for others. For some companies, splitting the chairman and CEO is a good idea, not for others. And, uh, and, and particular mergers, obviously, vary uh, with, with every transaction. So, uh, it's, yes, it's worrying. And look, the, the, big, um, the big firms, uh, all three of them in the past 18 months, began to say, we're going to increase our resources allocated to uh, proxy voting. We're going to have a team of people study companies and study issues and make decisions. I appreciated the language, but then the staffing was minuscule. I think uh, uh, BlackRock put 40 more, 40 people uh, into this area. Uh, they, they follow tens of thousands of companies. So I worry a great deal uh, when, when, when we have this, this kind of uh, generalized proxy uh, governance. Uh, and it, it, one size does not fit all uh, in most aspects of corporate governance. And so uh, it's, it's very important that we have some shareholders uh, whose incentives and inclination uh, are to, to study particular companies and then be prepared uh, on a moment's notice to decide, yes, we ought to elect this person, or yes, we ought to adopt this climate change policy, or what have you, rather than having a, a generalized, um, system-wide uh, set of rules. I want to ask you about how to identify these companies with the high density of high-quality shareholders. You've been, uh, I've been reading your Twitter, and you've been posting occasionally some companies that meet your criteria. And we're quant investors, and so I'm always interested when I hear something about this, about how do I actually go in the data and how do I find these companies? So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about this high conviction, high holding period, these types of investors. How do you go in the data and how do you actually identify these companies? Yeah, sure. Um, I've got a whole write-up of the methodology that, that we use um, and it, it'll appear as an appendix to my book that's coming out in, in the fall called Quality Shareholders. Um, we, we, it basically reports two different things. One, a canvas of the existing uh, research uh, around this question of who, who are the quality shareholders, which companies attract them, and then an original uh, data crunch empirical study that we did uh, combing through 20 Fs. On the, on the former side, we, we look at, I think we have 15 or 20 different studies of various kinds that try to probe for uh, which Stockholders, which institutional investors have high average holding periods, and then um, and which of them have um, relatively high concentration uh, levels, um, um, and these studies in turn around identify a lot of these what, what I call quality shareholders, a term Warren minted by the way back in the in the seventies, um, and so we looked at all of those studies and and you know, made lists of which, which companies they identified that way. Um, and then there's a little more informal, uh, almost anecdotal literature, uh, you know, popular uh, books on uh, concentrated investing or on uh, value investing. 
um, by Tobias Carlisle, uh, Seth Corman, uh, and others who just, and even essays that Warren has written, you know, his famous essay in the Hermes magazine at Columbia Business School identified 10 different quality shareholders. So we, we combed through all of that literature to try to identify who, who, who seems to be recognized as, um, as, as quality measured in this way, high, high concentration, long average holding periods. Um, and then, then we, we, we turned around and tried to figure out, well, in, in which companies have they invested significantly? And then we turn around, look, are those companies attracting other quality shareholders in high density? So that was, a, I'd say, was somewhat in, informal um, uh, uh, canvas of the available commentary on the, on the population. And, um, and the neat thing about what we saw was there, it, it, there tended to be a, a consensus uh, or that's the same names popped up frequently and, and so on. So there wasn't a lot of, uh, weren't a lot of um, anomalies in, in what we read. And, and then we turned around and did a, a heavy duty empirical study where uh, first we um, crunched the, the 20 Fs um, basically for the last five years, um, all funds with assets under management of, of greater than a billion um, and, and we did a lot of different, developed a lot of different measures of duration and, and conviction, uh, to try to look at, the, look at the company, look at the funds from as many different ways as we could. And then, and we'll explain all this in, in this appendix and then rank them, um, one through, I forget how many thousands were in there. Um, according to this um, matrix of uh, concentration and, and duration. Um, and they lined up, again, reasonably well with what we saw in the, in the, in the survey uh, part of the study. They were not huge surprises uh, to us. And we got a whole list of, of who those companies, who those funds are. And, and when I've, I've circulated that list informally among um, people in the ecosystem, people say, yeah, that's, that looks right to me. Every once in a while, you'll see, oh, that's a little bit of a surprise. Um, and some, some of the Twitter feed has a, a little of that, that commentary in it. Uh, and then we took the, the second half as well, which, which companies tend to attract this type of shareholder in high density? Uh, and so, you know, here we, we took a bunch of similar proxies and, and applied them to the, um, to the to various, to some, I think we had 2,300 companies um, most of the Russell 3000, uh, and, and identified which of these tended to attract quality shareholders in the highest density and rank them, uh, again, one to 2,300 or whatever it was. Um, and then, and cross check that in various ways, examine, examine, uh, the lists of selected, uh, companies, uh, on that, um, index. Uh, just to sort of verify it. Uh, and uh, so those are the two steps. First, identifying the quality shareholders. Second, identifying companies that seem to attract them in high density. And then the third part, which is the, the hardest, oh, and on that second part, when, when I share that list of here, here are some companies that attract uh, shareholder, quality shareholders in high density. Again, people in the ecosystem, you know, pe people who are, this shareholder cohort tend to nod. Say, yeah, that 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 doesn't surprise me. You know, that that's a company that uh, I would expect to attract uh, 
this, this long-term concentrated uh, cohort. And then the third thing we do is try to figure out well, what is it about these companies that attracts that cohort disproportionately. Um, and this, this may be the hardest part of the project. I mean, the other parts are were hard too, but, um, uh, and uh, we have examined 20 or 30 different potential um, hypotheses um, around communications, capital allocation strategy, uh, signals about time horizon and so on. And then try to try to probe wh which of these um, seem to be um, uh, ex explanations for for this effect. With and the, the idea there is that if if a company or a board or a CEO uh, ha had a thought that we we'd like to have more uh, long-term concentrated shareholders, that we've got plenty of indexers and we've got plenty of transients, we'd like to have more of this this stable, committed group. Uh, and they ask themselves, well, what could we do? Uh, to attract them, um, this this part of the project is is designed to offer some suggestions uh, about what they might do. Yeah, that's interesting because that that sort of gets at what I was going to ask next, which is how do companies? If, if I'm running a company, what do I do to try to attract these people? And I wanted to ask you it from the perspective of Tesla. You had tweeted about Tesla recently and said, you know, Tesla has a very high quality shareholder base. And you were talking about sort of that they may end up in the S&P 500 and they may get a bunch of indexers in there and that may degrade it to some degree. But they've also got another thing going on in Tesla, which is because the stock is up three times or whatever it's up this year, they're also tending to get these transients in there now, the, the day traders and the, you know, the barstool sports people. And they're all tending to come into Tesla as well. And I was wondering if you were, if you were advising Tesla, what are some of the things they could do to maybe maintain that high quality shareholder base when it's maybe getting attacked from different directions? It's, it's a great question. And um, I just read this morning because of that, that stock price appreciation, um, you know, galloping in, in just the past year that the board is proposing to split the stock five for one. Um, and, and that's, that's, I would oppose that. And I would recommend that they not do that. Uh, precisely for this reason that um, and stock splits was one of the factors that we examined to to test whether a propensity to do stock splits is associated with a high or low density of quality shareholders and it turns out it's associated with a lower density of quality shareholders and and the it's, maybe it's obvious the rationale is to entice more people into the stock and if you're enticing more people into the stock, well, you're, you're probably going to in, in, entice some churn uh, in, in that stock. If you're aiming for the Barstool folks, um, you, you, you're way more likely to get um, higher turnover, higher volatility, and more transients rather than higher quality. In fact, when you flip it around, if you go and look at the companies with the highest stock price, uh, their Berkshire's got the the record, you know, with, with six figures, but there, there are a bunch, not many, but some with, with four figure stock prices. Um, and almost all of them have very high densities of, of, of high quality stockholders. And so, uh, and if, if you look down at the other end, if you, the companies that have, sp that split their stock with a high degree of frequency over a period of time to keep it, keep the price low, keep it attractive to larger numbers of people, they tended to attract lower density of, of quality shareholders. So I, I think that five for one split is a is a big mistake. If, if, if what they were after were high quality shareholders, I think that's a big mistake. So I'd advise them against it. You know, Apple's doing that too. I, I'd advise them against it too. Um, but, you know, I said that about Tesla. Um, 
because I think they've attracted high quality shareholders, but it may not be because of anything that they that the company consciously set out to do. It may not be something Elon Musk really even cares about. Um, but it, they've, they've just happened to do it. Uh, it may just be the economics are mouthwatering, and 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 uh, that that kind of shareholder has a good uh, good sense for uh, uh, appealing uh, investment opportunities. But uh, you know, I'd I'd uh, I'd be against that split, uh, and you know, if I would not be celebrating the fact that they're getting in the index again, I think you know, what you're gonna you're obviously just going to attract a larger cohort of indexers who simply have to own the stock because it's in the index. Um, so I, I might just go back to if, if Elon cared about the shareholder base, I I might go back and review with him the the whole concept of a shareholder base. Not not a lot of not. Too few CEOs actually even think hard about who, who are our shareholders and what will it mean for us when we get into a particular activist situation or, or, or proxy battle. Yeah, maybe he should stop antagonizing the SEC on Twitter as well. That may not be, uh, that also may not be in his best interest. Or, or going on Joe Rogan and smoking pot with him. <laughs> Yeah, I think I, Elon is not necessarily uh, the you know the, the poster child for a CEO of the year. I mean, he's a, he's an, you know uh, he, he's successful in all sorts of ways. I'm not criticizing, but he's not. He, he I, I I doubt that he would care as much as I do about is our shareholder base a quality shareholder base or not. Right. No. No. We got you. Um, speaking of Apple, um, this is one of the questions I wanted to ask you, and I think it kind of relates to what you said before about Buffett, but. You know, Buffett was obviously slow to invest in technology. Um, I think it probably initially started with IBM, which he kind of, that ended up not being a very good investment. Um, but then a few years ago, he added um, Apple to the public stock portfolio. And now Apple accounts for the largest uh, position of Berkshire's publicly traded holdings. So Apple, I think last time I looked, which was just like the other day, $110 billion position for Berkshire Hathaway. Um, and the total public portfolio, the investable assets is about 240. So Apple's almost, you know, getting close to a 50% position um, within that group of stocks that Buffett owns. So I guess the question that I wanted to sort of get at there is Buffett, you know, has migrated over the long term. He was initially a deep value investor, sort of from the Graham style of investing. Then he moved to more of a blue chip, high quality compounder. Um, but you know, making those transitions is just, I would imagine is extremely difficult, but maybe then again, maybe the best investors are able to pivot and see and realize that, you know, now it's time to maybe be looking at these stocks when I have, haven't before. But I mean, do you just have any thoughts or insights about Buffett's ability to do that and how that has maybe in some cases help them in this case of Apple or in other cases, maybe it's hurt him. Um, I don't know, but I just wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, Justin, it's a great question. And I think you're right to identify those, um, those big investment philosophy pivots from the Graham deep value cigar bite approach, um, which shifted almost in a transaction uh, in the acquisition of C's candies at, at Charlie Munger's encouragement uh, to focus on brands and franchise value and, and pay up a little for quality. Uh, you know, then he, he pivoted again, I guess, um, roughly around 2000, maybe 2010 from a um, 
kind of low capital intensity focus to a significant capital intensity focus, um, especially BNSF Railway in 2010 and then Precision Cast Parts in 2017. So he, he is uh, agile. He, he, he is adaptive. Um, as we said in the beginning, I mean, he's a learner and, and he learns as, as he goes. Uh, and he's also a contextualist that, you know, his, his judgments are made in the context of what, what his asset base is, what his, what his um, uh, intellectual uh, capabilities are, uh, and, you know, and who's around him. And I think the, the Apple move is, is interesting. Um, you know, I think the funny thing about IBM is they had a big position and it didn't do well. And that was kind of a, a tech company that moved too slow. <laughs> Warren's concern about tech was he, he can't predict uh, the business in three or five or seven years. And, you know, with IBM, it, I think one of its problems uh, was it didn't change fast enough. You know, with Apple, I, I think it's it may be less that Warren has um, a, adapted his own uh, acuity or ability to analyze uh, future cash flows of a, of a tech company than that, um, hey, Apple is, it's a lot easier to understand that technology than, you know, say cloud, cloud computing in, in 2010 or, or even the ba basic internet in, t in 2000. So uh, it's just an easier business to get your hands around. Um, and um, I think that the principal decision makers at Berkshire on that investment were uh, his two portfolio managers, um, Todd Coombs and, and or Ted Weschler as, as much as it was Warren. So. I think this lesson around pivot is, isn't so much, you know, that, that he has um, changed his view or changed his abilities or the, the world has changed, but that he has grown Berkshire in a way so that he, he, he makes fewer and fewer of the most important decisions. And he's, he's pushed more and more responsibility down to the team around him. And um, which I think is extremely important when you think about Warren pivoting. Uh, he's pivoted not only as an investor in, in the ways you've described, but also as a manager. Uh, so beginning in about 2000, when the company really shifted from being mostly an owner of marketable securities to mostly an owner of operating businesses, uh, he, he's, he realized more and more every month that he, he can't make most operating decisions. And so he's, even as the company has grown larger and larger with vaster businesses uh, all around it, he's done less and less decision-making. He's delegated more, he's trusted more, uh, and that's come into the investment side too by hiring Todd and Ted, giving them increasing levels of responsibility. And so now, you know, the number one stock in a portfolio by size is really a, a decision, I, you know, I think he may have approved and so on, but, um, it wasn't it wasn't his brainchild and so i mean i i think you're right absolutely that he's um able to pivot has has done that maybe every decade uh in a measurable way more frequently and i think this current pivot is really about uh, almost maybe it's the next question but but it's really about what's berkshire tomorrow what's berkshire after warren and um and i think that's maybe the ultimate pivot for sure yeah, I wanted to I wanted to pick up on something you said about Buffett's sort of his change towards investing in high quality companies. You know, start he started at the beginning maybe buying the cheaper stocks and then moved towards high quality companies. 
it seems to me like that's one of the most difficult concepts to define in investing. You know, it's pretty, it's pretty easy to figure out maybe what a cheap company is, but when you talk about quality, I mean, it's one of those things where you, you know it when you see it, but it's hard to figure out what it is. And I, and I know you wrote a whole book on quality, you know, finding high quality companies. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you think the common attributes are that high quality companies have. Yeah, sure. It's a great question. And I, I enjoyed writing that book. It was with uh, uh, investors from the AKO Capital Firm in London, which specializes in hunting for um, extremely high quality companies and then and then acts as a quality shareholder and buying very large stakes and, and holding them for indefinitely. And uh, it was fun to do that work with them. We um, basically excavated their investment process and examined their decision-making and, and, and crunched through all the analysis that, that they had applied to their decisions over uh, 10 or 15 years to identify these, these quality companies. And um, it was almost a, uh, a lesson in, um, in microeconomics or industrial structure. You know, we're looking at the, composition of the of the industry the sorts of competition the pricing power uh, the branding effects ultimately most the competitive competitive advantages that would enable a company to uh, deliver sustained high returns on invested capital uh, and so um, that's that's what we we probe and there, there are many ways to, to do it um, we have some examples of such as a friendly middleman, where a, a company that's able to use um, the intermediaries between themselves and a customer, uh, so a plumber recommending your brand of pipe or an eye doctor recommending your brand of, of eyeglasses, and if you're able to cultivate that, it makes it creates a bit of a barrier, creates a competitive advantage against, against rivals who don't have that special relationship. Um, so we identified... Uh, dozen or more of, of these sorts of moats, these sorts of competitive advantages. Others have done it too in, in, in different different ways. Warren obviously always speaks about having a moat and having a competitive advantage and what, what is it that enables, what, what is it that protects your business um, from uh, rivalrous in, invasion? Um, and to your point about measuring that, I, you know, it, it, it comes out um, in the results, and I, I think the the ultimate measure is is return on invested capital uh, over long periods of time, and then you know, that's the first place to look uh, if you're trying to scout out for who, who are the quality companies, uh, in which company would it be attractive to de deploy this this capital investment? You, you first look at that track record. Have they been able to outperform uh, on a consistent basis for a significant period? And then you look inside to what accounts for that. Uh, do they have a, a, a brand advantage? Is, is there a network effect? Are, are, is this a mission-critical product? Is it, do they have a friendly middleman? Um, and then you, you probe that. And so is, is the competitive environment rational? I mean, is, is it likely that, that you know, it, rivals are content with um, some level of, of profitability given market share, or, or is there some risk? of disruption by a um, by an existing irrational competitor or some uh, disruptor from from outside. So you, you, you sort of walk through it that way and, um, you know, come to a judgment that this is a business that commands 
um, some sustainable advantages and it's not uh, selling at some outrageous price, then that may be a, a good appealing quality company uh, for an investor willing to hold for an indefinite period in a, in a meaningful concentration. I want to ask you about quantifying something like a moat. You know, you, you talked about some of the criteria you talked about, like sustained high return on capital is something that can be quantified. But then some of the other stuff you talked about is something that would be more difficult. And, you know, we're as quant investors, one of the things we've always tried to do is we've tried to figure out, you know, what could we, what criteria could we use to identify companies that have a moat? And I was wondering what you think about our chances of doing that. Do you think a person is much better suited to trying to identify these companies that have a moat? Or do you think we can maybe get most of the way there with more of a quantitative strategy looking at the fundamentals of the company? Yeah, my, my guess is that your, your quant approach is, is going to be more, more reliable. It should be checked with human judgment. But I think you're, you're trying to do analysis that requires um, pr pretty heavy duty, duty statistical work around holding certain variables constant and, and, and testing dependent variables. So I, I think that your quant method is probably more promising in trying to measure the contribution, let's say, of you know, any given company may enjoy multiple moats and, and they may all contribute in different ways to the to the measurable output. And so trying to estimate what those are is extremely difficult. And I think you're probably better, you're more likely to get some parameters around that with the kind of quantitative analysis you're doing. Um, but then I think as with all statistics, you're, you're, you need to then step back and um, you know, apply human judgment on wh whether, this, whether this sounds right, whether this, this, this seems to make sense, uh, you know, and have some, some uh, human, human checks on the, on the data. Um, do you have, uh, obviously Buffett, when Buffett's shareholder letters are published, you know, it's like they're highlighted in the media. I mean, I'm on Saturday morning, you know, d d digging in and reading it. And, um, so clearly that's a very, you know, investors are very interested in what Buffett has to say and his, the wisdom that he's sharing. But if you could identify, maybe it's not a top 10 list, but what other CEOs are, articulating their vision and their knowledge through shareholder letters. Like if you were to try to highlight the ones that you think are sort of capturing what Buffett is doing, maybe they're not talking about investing, they're talking about the direction of their company and, and, and sort of their vision for it. But do you have sort of a short list of other um, CEOs and corporate leaders that are doing a really good job with their shareholder letters? Yeah. Thanks, Justin. I, got, I can, I've got a book on that one too. Uh, oh, there you go. <laughs> and the way I so I could I could read you. Sorry. I think I've got three names in here, but I won't well, be, well. be this. But but it is an interesting question because <clears throat> how did I come to um, have this this answer? Um, as I was as I've been doing the research on who are the quality shareholders, which companies attract them, and what are the factors? One of the factors um, that we're concentrating on is communications so broadly. How does the company uh, reach its stockholders and, and what does it say? Uh, and so we thought um, uh, annual meetings, quarterly calls, communications, and annual letters. Um, before I get into the, this list, I'll just say um, earlier, uh, uh, we, we said what, what, what levers, what um, corporate policies attract different kinds of shareholders. So one of the, this may be obvious too, but it's really important is that if, if you're trying to get transient shareholders, if you like a lot of short-term people, then have lots of quarterly 
have a quarterly call every quarter, make forecasts mm. and, and indicate how you're meeting them. Uh, that's what attracts transients. And flip it around, if, if you want to avoid the transient cohort, you want to have fewer of them, more of the quality shareholder cohorts, skip the quarterlies. Don't make forecasts. Don't have analyst calls. Speak to the holders once a year. Um, or you, you could do Q&A throughout the year as some um, – Joe Monsuato was doing it at Morningstar. I think they still do, and some other companies do. But uh, that quarterly communication attracts transients and repels quality. A good, high-quality annual shareholder letter attracts quality. And um, so, how did? So, I, I have a whole chapter in in the quality shareholder book about what an annual letter that attracts quality shareholders probably looks like. Uh, in terms of candor, metrics, explaining fundamentals like capital allocation, um, and stressing uh, business strategy over multiple period, multiple years rather than quarterly results. And, and so I, I lay out a bunch of uh, features of, of, the high, of the shareholder letter that attracts quality shareholders. Um, and then as I inventory that material and I, re I read Score dozens of letters from hundreds of CEOs. I just I was able to distill it down into um, little chapters, and so I decided I mean, that that was the research that enabled me to write my chapter. But I decided let's publish those. So I I took the best of, of twenty of them and and published this this book, Dear Shareholder. And I have to say, Warren leads it off. I mean, he he's the the gold standard in the shareholder letter, Justin, as you just explained. Every April, whatever that day is. March, millions of people download that letter. He, he perfected the art. Uh, he, he wrote compelling letters almost from the beginning, uh, really developed it into a, an art form. Uh, I've written extensively about the, the writing his writing style, how he's able to um, in, entice such a following. Because it, it's, it's a lot of its substance, but there is also a, a way that he puts things, aphoristic, it's uh, illustrations, Humility, uh, uh, but in terms of quality shareholders, focus on the long term, discussion of business strategy, explanations of rational capital allocation, and so on. Uh, and so that he provided the the gold standard and, and sort of the, the framework for for this. Uh, the other some other people that I've put in here, I mentioned Joe Mansueto from Morningstar wrote excellent letters. Um, he retired a couple years ago, and his successor I think is doing uh, is trying to do the same thing. Ian Cumming and Joe Steinberg um, at uh, Lucadia were, were excellent writers of corporate shareholder letters over a 35-year career. Uh, and those, those two, I think, would be especially appealing to your audience. That These guys were investors first. Uh, they, they built up uh, Lucadia National into a, an operating conglomerate, um, a little bit like Berkshire, I, I guess, uh, and some different principles. They... they they were not buy and hold. They bought opportunistically and, and sold um, when when that was profitable. But their letters explain their investment strategy. Um, they, they were it's a warts and all kind of guys. And it, it, here, here are the dumb things we did or the challenges we can't get over. But here's how we're thinking through. And just wonderful, wonderful letters. Um, I have to say the Markel Corporation letters are outstanding. This is an uh, insurance company, a lot like Berkshire. Uh, it's a third-generation Richmond-based company. Um, specializes in in niche property casualty, but a lot of niche insurance companies. 
Uh, they've got an impressive uh, value-based stock portfolio, very quality shareholders, uh, along with a merchant division where they, they buy and hold companies and write outstanding letters. Tom Gaynor is the CEO and um, uh, pithy, uh, wise, funny, uh, candid, clear, long-term, shareholder-focused, very owner-oriented. Um, and then, well, I should say my friend, um, I'm on the board of Constellation Software, and Mark Leonard, the chairman and CEO, had for 15 or so years written letters that were followed as avidly in his world as uh, Warren's are in the world at large. I've got some samples from him. Very, very rational, deep, analytical, uh, own-oriented, um, very long-term. Uh, and, and, you know, I guess one of the best things about all these letters is they, like Warren's, um, they're a, um, a mini course in, in business management, business strategy, business leadership. I mean, it's, it's no, not a substitute for an MBA, but it, it's the kind of thing that any, any person thinking about business school or even majoring in business, uh, focusing on investment would, I think, benefit, benefit from reading. Professor, what we're going to do is uh, we're, we're trying to get reviews for our podcast. So what I'm going to do is if people actually leave us a review and they like this podcast, I'm going to buy them a copy of your book. Deal? Oh, thank you. That's great. Yeah. Yes, thank we'll you buy a few much. copies and we'll, and we'll ship them out to people that uh, are finding this um, valuable. Um, the last question I just wanted to ask sort of before we wrap up, and this might be a tough one, but... Um, I mean, we talked a lot about Buffett. We, we started with Buffett. Um, you shared your wisdom and, and you know, your experience and, and learning from Buffett. But what is your most memorable encounter with him? If you could kind of highlight, you know, the one encounter you've had with Warren. I mean, what stands out the most in your mind? Ah, Justin, that is, I think you said this might be the hardest question. It is because immediately a, a fairly large number Right. Uh, come to mind. He, he is, uh, you know, I, I think he, he's, he's what you see is what you get. And, and so, you know, that, that folksy, uh, friendly, uh, avuncular uh, sensibility is, is what, what comes across in all the encounters. And, and so um, I want to try to um, share such a, such a um, insight or, or, or story. Uh, with you, I, I could give you twenty. You know, someday I should maybe write write them down. <laughs> I've never done that. Um, but I, I'll 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 take us back uh, to the essays of Warren Buffett, Lessons for Corporate America, where it's 1995, and I'm running a corporate governance program at uh, my university, and I I decide I'm I'm hosting events and general you know gathering knowledge and. And I think it would be a really neat thing to have a symposium featuring his letters and I would rearrange them and have him there and his entourage and my colleagues. And, and that's what we did. We put on this whole show and it was just, just wonderful. Uh, we had two, 200 or so people, mostly students in, in the audience. And we debated every idea in the, in the book from, you know, accounting to valuation, mergers, governance, taxes. It was, it was, it was just a wonderful, wonderful event. And it got a little bit of press. It got press. Um, Forbes covered it. Uh, Fortune did something on it. It was covered by the FT. I, it was more, more than I ex expected. 
And, uh, and the result then was that all the big time public um, book publishers were, were, were calling me saying, well, can we publish that book? We'd like to publish that book. We'd like to publish that book. And I had just planned on publishing it as a, as a journal uh, article, a you know, journal feature. And so, uh, and, and they, these big time publishers were offering a, 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 insane advances uh, and royalty ladders and inducements. They were, they were trying to make me feel like a kind of rock star or something uh, ridiculous like that. And so I, I called Warren and I, I said, um, you, here's, uh, th these firms have, because you know, they had gotten a copy of it from the symposium, th these, this firm has offered this amount of money, <laughs> uh, which was fall off your chair money uh, and, and so on. Uh, and, and he said, Larry, I, you, you do whatever you want, but I don't think you should do that. In the publishing business, the, the, the publisher will take total control of all editorial, marketing, positioning, everything else. Um, and that sum of money that you're looking at there, uh, it, it, it sounds enticing and so on, but uh, if, if you are in control of everything, um, first of all, you'll get a lot of benefit out of that. And, and you don't need their help <laughs> to, to achieve those results. So do whatever you want. <laughs> so, you know, this was in, as I said, 1997. So Amazon was just created. The internet was just born. So you had to sell books through Barnes and Noble and Borders and, uh, and you know, places like that. And so I, I accepted, I, I took what he was saying, right? So I, I, I self-published the book. And for 10 years, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd package the boxes and, and, and send them out, you know, UPS and, I self-published. I did everything. Uh, I, I eventually partnered with a distributor to help me do it. But he was absolutely right. I, I, I just, I love publishing the essays of Warren Buffett. It's, it's the neatest thing I've ever done professionally. Uh, and he was absolutely right. It would have, I published with publishers and I have nothing against them, but for that, for that product, it's, it, it, he was just absolutely right. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that kind of wisdom, you know, and, and that kind of long, long view uh, was extremely valuable to me. Um, thanks for asking. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great story. Classic Buffett advice, you know, thinking long term and not so much in the here and now, even though it might have been a lot of money, but um, that's a great story. So thank you. Um, so Professor Cunningham, you, this has been awesome. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for joining us. If people want to learn more about you or um, get any details on your books um, or your writing and research and projects that you're doing, where can they go to find and learn more about you? The best place uh, these days will be on my website for the Quality Shareholders Initiative. That's the research project I mentioned. It's at, at George Washington University. So if you type in GW, quality shareholders and my name, you'll, you'll probably get right, right to that site. And it's got, um, it's got links to um, pub the publications and research and videos and we'll, we'll continue to populate it. Great. We'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes as well. Thanks. All right. Thank you, professor. We appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. It's a pleasure. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at @jjcarbono. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, 
please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.